everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome to the Katie Halber Show. Thank you so much for joining us. We are thrilled to have you here with us. We have a great show for you today. We have a bunch of great guests. We'll be talking to Mary Tillman, Pat Tillman's mother, and Nardis Arquino, the great journalist. They wrote a book together. They'll be talking about that. But first, before that, we're going to be talking to Julia Rock, who is a journalist at Lever, the Lever News. She's going to be talking to us about East Palestine, the much-neglected story about what's happening there that the media seems allergic to. But before we start that, please do like this stream. It's a very easy way to just help support the show and get the word out about the show. Just give it a thumbs up. Also, if you don't already, please subscribe to the show. We are almost at 86,000. We want to get to 100,000. So to do that, you just hit subscribe and then you hit the bell. Then you won't ever miss any of these great streams. If you can become Patreon supporters, do that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Also, subscribe to the podcast, rate and review the podcast. This is how we can fight back against the uh, corporate overlords who try to control our lives. All righty. Well, I think we're going to just start the show because our following guest has been very generous with her time. She's very in demand because she's been doing some great reporting from East Palestine. So let us bring to the virtual stage Julia Rock, who is a staff reporter at The Lever. And I don't know if it's The Lever or The Lever, but we will see. We'll find out. Welcome, Julia. Thanks so much for having me on. Of course. Thanks for joining us. I'm super happy to be here. So tell us what has happened. What is the latest? This has been a very neglected story by the mainstream media, the establishment media. I think The Lever has really like been a trailblazer in terms of this story. What have you discovered and what do people need to know about what happened in East Palestine? Well, there are a lot of places you could start this story, but the short version of it is that on February 3rd, Norfolk Southern train traveling through East Palestine, Ohio derailed and started on fire. And then there was toxic chemical plume released as the railroad burned off the hazardous chemicals that were being carried by some of the tank cars. Sort of the status now is that EPA is on the ground, the Environmental Protection Agency is on the ground, sort of overseeing cleanup efforts, which it's just announced is going to force Norfolk Southern to pay for. Meanwhile, sort of there's immense pressure on the Biden administration to tackle some of the root causes that allowed this derailment to happen, namely the railroad industry spending all of its money on stock buybacks, not all of its money, of course, but spending more of its profits on stock buybacks than investments in the railroads and its workforce, which has sort of been enabled by multiple presidential administrations and Congresses. There's a lot of blame to go around, right? But where are some of the places that we should be assigning blame? I mean, you know, the most obvious place to point fingers is Norfolk Southern. The railroads themselves have just been unbelievably greedy over the past decade. You know, something happens when you do a lot of reporting on corporate malfeasance and corporate influence on government, where like every time you write about an industry, it's like, oh, is this the most evil industry? And yet I think it's it, it may be the railroads. Um, they 
have sort of made this shift as many industries have to sort of solely focus on returning profits to shareholders. Meanwhile, over the past decade, they've cut their workforces by nearly 30%. Workforces were already declining on the railroads and they have fought tooth and nail um, against safety regulations, such as updating their trains with better braking technologies, um, mandating two-man crews on trains, things like that. So this is an industry that is sort of singularly focused on profits. Its trains are derailing quite frequently. It's carrying, you know, hazardous materials, crude oil on trains and fighting safety regulations for those trains. What kind of environmental damage and public health damage has already been documented? Yeah, so there, there sort of was the initial problem of primarily vinyl chloride, one of the chemicals being carried on this train sort of lingering in the air because it's toxic and carcinogenic and you don't want to be inhaling it. So there were sort of immediate air quality concerns. But then the the bigger problem is sort of that vinyl chloride lingers. It lingers in the walls of people's homes. It lingers in the soil. It lingers in the water. There were other chemicals aboard the train that were also released and are now sort of in the water and in the soil. So there are sort of vast environmental concerns that I think are still sort of being uncovered. Residents are concerned, of course, because some of the water testing initially was carried out by a consulting firm paid by Norfolk Southern. Norfolk Southern itself was doing some of the home testing. And it's like this, you know, is a company that just allowed a hazardous train to derail in your town and released a mushroom cloud. Why should you trust it to sort of be ensuring that your community is safe? Yeah, that doesn't sound too good. What is being done to protect people right now? One thing that's happening, again, is that EPA is sort of on the ground conducting testing and um, overseeing Norfolk Southern's remediation efforts, which seems like a very positive step. But there's sort of a, a multitude of things happening. There's there's also sort of this like broader focus on how the railroad industry even reached a point where something like this could happen. And so, you know, there's focus both on EPA and the Ohio EPA to sort of ensure that the water is safe, that the air is safe, that people's homes are safe, but also a focus on the railroad industry. And, and, you know, tens of millions of Americans live within the evacuation zones of railroads. So, you know, if this can happen in East Palestine, there's a feeling that it could happen anywhere. And it does happen in all sorts of places. I mean, more than a thousand trains derail every year. So I think there's sort of this question of what is the Biden administration going to do to rein in this industry if anything, you know, what is Congress going to do? There there are voices from both sides of the aisle right now sort of criticizing the lack of railroad regulations. Some of these criticisms are a little bit dubious because they're coming from Republicans who themselves have voted, you know, to repeal rail safety rules. But there's sort of this broader question of like looking beyond East Palestine. How do we make sure this doesn't happen again, which it inevitably will in the short term, but there, there need to be sort of longer term efforts to rein in the industry. Are we seeing it happening other places? Are we seeing derailments happen other places? Yeah. I mean, yes, absolutely. I think it was the day, maybe it was the day after the East Palestine derailment, or it was the day after national media started covering the East Palestine derailment. You know, there was another high-profile hazardous train derailment. I think there was just one in Houston. I mean, they're happening sort of everywhere all the time. There's sort of no doubt that this is going to continue to happen if nothing is done to change the rules. The Democrats are blaming the Republicans and the Republicans are blaming the Democrats and no one really wants to do anything right now. But it seems like there's bipartisan blame. So 
Trump made certain decisions that made this happen. Biden has made certain decisions or not made certain decisions that have exacerbated this. Can you walk us through what the different administrations have done? I mean, you could go back so many presidential administrations to talk about deregulation of the railroads and, you know, the focus on shareholders over customers, et cetera. But we've been reporting on a story that really starts with the Obama administration. And the Obama administration in the 2010s, in response to an increasing amount of crude oil being shipped on freight rail, as well as other, you know, hazardous materials, there's been sort of a long-term decline since the 70s in train derailments, but actually an uptick in hazardous material train derailments. So the Obama administration in the early 2010s is sort of watching these these high-profile and scary derailments happening and decides it's going to issue some safety rules aimed at making trains carrying hazardous materials safer with things like speed limits, tank retrofits, an updated braking system, as well as disclosure requirements. So oftentimes towns don't even know like what hazardous materials are being carried through them. But at the time, the rules were crafted somewhat narrowly. So at the time, the National Transportation Safety Board, the federal investigative agency that comes in after transportation accidents to say what went wrong and issue safety recommendations, urged the Obama administration to take a really broad definition of hazardous materials and what constituted a high hazard flammable train. At the same time, you know, the chemical industry, other industries were lobbying the Obama administration to take a very narrow definition. They ended up siding with the corporate lobbyists and adopting the more narrow definitions such that the train that just derailed in East Palestine, which we watched start on fire, we watched, you know, release this, this mushroom cloud, was not categorized as a high hazard flammable train. Still, the regulations were issued. Then comes the Trump administration, and the administration moves to repeal some of the most robust parts of those safety rules, which was namely a requirement that trains carrying hazardous materials be equipped with electronically controlled pneumatic brakes, which are you know, an upgrade over the existing Civil War era air braking system freight trains currently use. And then you know, Biden shows up. We were all following all of the news coverage of how captured and evil and, you know, corporatist the Trump administration was. So it might seem like a Democratic administration would come in and reinstate the regulations that Trump had slashed and burned. And yet we really haven't seen that with the Biden administration and in particular the Department of Transportation. Is there a relationship between Biden basically intervening to prevent a strike and what just happened? I think there's undoubtedly a relationship. That's a great question. So the rail union contract negotiations that were happening leading up into last fall were in some ways really fixated on this issue of precision scheduled railroading, which I'd alluded to earlier with the railroads slashing their workforces by nearly 30%. But basically, this is sort of a new management strategy aimed at making trains more efficient, which basically means running them with leaner workforces and at a lower cost. For workers, this has meant trains are understaffed, there are more safety concerns, inspection times are falling, which is obviously a huge safety issue. Workers can't get paid sick time, they can't get time off. And so these were sort of all issues that were coming up in contract negotiations with the railroad industry. The Biden administration intervened in those contract negotiations to help industry and the unions reach a deal. When some of the unions voted against the contract that the administration had helped negotiate, Congress stepped in and passed a law preventing the rail workers from striking, which, of course, sort of the the one point of leverage workers have to win a contract is the power to withhold their labor, which was taken up from under them. So some of the safety issues that came up 
as well as some of the, you know, chronic understaffing issues in those negotiations absolutely had bearing on what just happened in East Palestine and sort of these larger, very concerning problems in the railroad industry. What about Pete Buttigieg in particular as the Department of Transportation chief, czar? Yes, uh, he is. Conductor. Despite what many people would like you to think, in charge of the Department of Transportation. And as we saw during, you know, the Southwest Airlines debacle this winter, but sort of with all sorts of things, he doesn't seem to have been doing very much. One of my coworkers was saying earlier today, like, there's sort of a big question about what he thinks his job is. And I think that's a really good question to ask. In the case of East Palestine, he did not say anything publicly about the derailment until 10 days after it had happened. And what he did say was in a tweet, something like, you know, I continue to be concerned about what is happening here. Under pretty immense pressure, I would say, over the past less than a week or so from lawmakers of both parties, increasingly from the media saying, you know, what is Pete going to do? Are there going to be any new regulations on railroads? Is he going to call for Congress to issue stronger regulations? You know, is he going to hold Norfolk Southern accountable? He's sort of done an about face from first saying, you know, there's not much I can do. It has to happen from Congress to saying, okay, I am in charge of regulating the railroads and we might do some regulations. But he's really taken a back seat here. He has not seemed very concerned, I think, until basically yesterday or the day before about the railroad industry, its greed, what happened in East Palestine. So he has a lot of catching up to do, it seems. You have another piece. Your most recent piece is Biden DOJ backing Norfolk Southern's bid to block lawsuits. Can you tell us about that? This is just another example, I think, of an opportunity where the Biden administration had to pick between the side of the railroad industry or a different industry and the side of workers. This is a case in which a former employee of Norfolk Southern sued the railroad company under a federal law which protects railroad workers injured on the job. And the lawsuit sort of had to do with exposure to toxic chemicals on the job. Norfolk Southern tried to block the lawsuit. The lawsuit was brought in Pennsylvania, which is not where the railroad worker had worked. Norfolk Southern tried to block the lawsuit, and they were essentially arguing that the plaintiff was involved in what's called forum shopping, so trying to find the most favorable venue to bring this lawsuit, which is, by the way, something that corporations do constantly. The case made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. Even though the case did not involve a federal law, it involved a Pennsylvania state law, And even though it did not involve the federal government, the Biden Department of Justice intervened, filing a brief on the side of Norfolk Southern and testifying at oral argument before the Supreme Court last fall. There was even a moment when Justice Elena Kagan sort of said to the DOJ lawyer, like, what are you doing here? This case doesn't really involve you. And he had some sort of convoluted answer. But it's sort of remarkable. It's just a case where the administration stepped in, took the side of the corporation to make it, you know, a little bit harder for plaintiffs to find venues favorable to them for their lawsuits. Even though, as I said before, this is something that is basically constantly available to corporations. They're always deciding what venues are going to be most favorable to them, whether it's, you know, to register their company, to bring a lawsuit, et cetera. You are covering the railway potential strike, the non-strike, the negotiations. Was this kind of surreal to you to see this thing happen after your months of reporting on it? So it's interesting. This type of derailment is like exactly the type of thing that rail workers have been warning about. It's sort of the type of thing where it's like, you know, if you slash your workforces, if you don't make infrastructure investments, if your workers are tired, if inspection times are falling, if you're increasingly carrying, you know, crude oil and hazardous materials on trains, like, there are going to be consequences at some point. And so I think this is sort of 
maybe a glimpse into what the future of this industry will be if things don't change really dramatically. And of course, I think a lot of people are expecting things to come out because there's a delayed effect when you're talking about public health and environmental damage. So we've only started to see some things, but I mean, we can expect that it'll get worse and there'll be, you don't have to be conspiracy theorists to be skeptical of reassurances. I mean, we saw the EPA after 9-11 reassured everyone they could go down to New York and start clean up. And of course, that wasn't true. I mean, yeah, we, we live in a country where it's completely reasonable to be concerned that, for example, the water isn't safe to drink. We, you know, we saw that in Flint, Michigan as well. It seems like in this case, EPA has sort of really stepped up and is potentially becoming more actively involved in monitoring, which seems much better than the alternative of, you know, Norfolk Southern being the one doing inspections and that type of thing. But yeah, people, of course, have legitimate reasons to be concerned about their health. And I know you have to run because you have another interview, but tell us what you're working on next or what we can expect or what we should be looking out for. I guess what I would say is, you know, it turns out we've reported a little bit on Norfolk Southern and the railroad industry lobbying group fighting tooth and nail against regulations that would make trains safer. But there's sort of a lot more to uncover there. So we're looking into that. I think we're also really curious to see, you know, with the proposals that are being floated by the transportation department by lawmakers, which ones actually have any teeth, which ones are just bells and whistles, that type of thing. And what else should we know about what the people there are going through? Like, what have they shared with you or what have you witnessed? I think one thing that has been remarkable and is certainly shifting in recent days, but was true at least at the beginning, was, you know, people feel sort of abandoned or, or left behind by the administration not showing up right away by there not being really thorough national news coverage right away. I think it sort of makes sense that if there's a void right after an accident, you know, I was speaking to a resident earlier today, made a really great point, which is that like, if nobody sort of comes in and provides information right after an accident, it allows the corporation to really dominate the narrative. And it seems like that was sort of what was initially happening in East Palestine. And I think that void laid the groundwork for a lot of mistrust. And of course, now Donald Trump gets to swoop in there and pretend to be concerned and yeah. Yeah. Is there any connection between Norfolk Southern shareholders being owners of the media? What I will say is that, you know, a media environment that is dependent on corporate advertising and is, you know, owned by corporations and billionaires is not really a media environment that is conducive to really thorough and critical reporting on corporate malfeasance. Yeah. I mean, there was a near blackout. You guys really, I think, pushed this into the national media. So thanks for doing that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, of course. Well, come back because you always have so many stories to talk about. I would love to. Thank you. Thanks, Julia. Have a good one. Okay, guys. So that was our first interview. We have more, so don't go anywhere. Please make sure you remember to like the stream if you haven't already liked it. Also subscribe. Also become Patreon supporters. If you join for $1 a month, that's $12 a year, you get to support the show. You make the show happen which we need. If you join for $5 a month, you get extended interviews, bonus episodes. So for instance, this week, it is a chat that I did with Brianna Joy Gray. It's about everything from the Oscars nominations to Joe Rogan, anti-Semitism, Ilhan Omar, Crystal Ball, and Sagar and Jetty and Breaking Points. And that's going to be this week's Patreon. Because the chat we had with Julian, the chat we're about to have with Mary Tillman and Narder Zakino are really important. So those are going to be open entirely to everyone. 
I think that's all we need to do in terms of announcements. I think we can start the next segment of the show. I'm very excited to be bringing on the next guest. We are speaking with none other than Mary Tillman. Mary Tillman is the mother of Patrick Tillman. She also wrote an excellent book with Narder Zacchino. That book is called Boots on the Ground by Dusk, Searching for Answers in the Death of Pat Tillman. And that's about their quest to uncover the truth surrounding the circumstances of Pat's death. Also, Narda Zarkino is a lifelong journalist, former masthead editor at the Los Angeles Times and the San Francisco Chronicle, author of two books, one on Pat Tillman and one on the contemporary history of California. And she's currently the editor of Shear Post, a daily news website that viewers of this show know very well, of course, because that's Bob Shear's website. Mary was a teacher for 12 years and raised three children, including Pat Tillman. So we're going to bring them onto the show now. Welcome, Mary and Narda. Hi, how are you? Thank you, Katie. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. And of course, it's not recent, but I want to offer my condolences to you, Mary, because obviously the loss of Pat is something that I'm sure is with you every day. So just wanted to offer condolences. People probably know that Pat's death and life were brought back into the spotlight recently because he and the Pat Tillman Foundation were saluted during the Super Bowl. And there was quite a bit of response to that because some people felt like his life and and his death were being whitewashed. That's kind of a separate issue. I But what I did want to make sure to do was use this opportunity of kind of renewed, of a return examination of Pat to just get to some of the important things that you want people to know about his life and about his death. I want to start though also just like on a kind of wonkier question, how you guys met and how you guys started working on the book. <laughs> you want me to tell it, Danny, and then you can... Yeah, you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> okay. First of all, I first heard of this, this story of Pat, the truth about Pat Tillman and his death, because when he first died, it was the story that was told by the government and picked up everywhere was that he died at the hands of the enemy, that he picked up his weapon and killed like nine enemy soldiers before he was shot and killed, et cetera. And it was a very heroic, uh, heroic moment. And that's what was spread around the country. Then I was a Pulitzer Prize judge and I was uh, judging the national category. And I saw this two-part or three-part series in the Washington Post by Stephen Call, reporter, and he told the truth about what happened to Pat Tillman, and I was shocked. And we're supposed to read these things really fast and pass them on, you know, because there's so many entries. I could not. I was just riveted to this these three this three part series. And you know, in those days, that was a long time ago. Uh, there was no internet, so I didn't know. I didn't know the Washington Post had this story, and it wasn't really picked up. In any case, a few years go by, and it's Memorial Day. And Mary and her family were pressing for the truth of what happened to Pat. And my husband, Robert Shear, was a columnist at the LA Times. And he wrote a column about this, about he made this his Memorial Day column, is how did this patriotic, heroic character, Pat Tillman, how was his death perverted into being, you know, this heroic death at the, at the hands of the enemy when it was actually friendly fire? And the phone rang. And the operator said, Pat Tillman's mother, Mary Tillman's on the phone. And Bob was almost afraid to pick it up. He thought she was going to ream him out for, <laughs> for 
writing the truth and uh, or writing about this, you know. And instead, she was like a bulldog on this. She said, if you want to come to my house, I have hundreds of pages of documents, reports, et cetera, et cetera. You can see what happened. You could read what happened. You could write about it. And he said, can I bring my wife? At that time, I was the deputy editor of the Chronicle. And I ended up assigning a reporter to write about it. And we went to Mary's house and spent several hours there going through all this. I was blown away. I mean, as a journalist, when you're told one story and it's on the national stage, and then you look at the documents that were withheld from you and the family, from everyone, especially the family. And then you meet these people. I mean, Mary was, a, like I said, a bulldog on this. She was not going to let this happen and, and just go by. And I'll have her tell more about how, what they did to the family in terms of his memorial and everything. But that's how we met. And then we decided to do a book on the story. But Danny, why don't you talk about how they treated you and the memorial? And Well, I think initially, too, it should be, you know, my youngest son, from the very beginning, even when we heard the original story, he couldn't wrap his head around it. He kept saying, you know, this sounds too much like a John Wayne movie. Was that Richard? Yes. And how would Pat make himself that vulnerable, you know, to the enemy? I mean, it didn't add up. And he was, you know, adamant about that and very upset about it. And of course, this was even before the friendly fire was, uh, you know, exposed. And then a month later, we were, we were then told that it was a friendly fire incident and we got the documents. Things just weren't adding up. And so I actually did kind of, you know, at the time, I didn't want anyone to know that I had gone to the Washington Post, but I actually did take some of the documents to Steve Cole, who was then the editor of the Washington Post, and he was interested in looking into the story. And he had a reporter, I think his name was Josh White. I, I, I Forgive me. If yeah, I think so, because I just reread it. So I think that's it. Yeah. And he did a lot of research on it. So that, you know, they did their best. And then, of course, you know, other things were written. And then, you know, of course, I did meet Narda and Bob. And they were very struck by the documents and the inconsistencies and what seemed like blatant lies. And we wanted to try to get in some kind of, you know, hearing, congressional hearing something. And we wrote the book in an effort to do that. As it turned out, the congressional hearing came about before the book was even finished. And so we did get the hearings. We got two of them. And they did come to the conclusion that there was a cover-up in Pat's death, but they never followed through to find out who instigated it and who started the whole process. I think for me at the congressional hearing, the most shocking thing was, and Mary can address this too, was there were these four, the generals, and I think Rumsfeld was there. Was that right, Mary? Yes, Rumsfeld, Abizade, I think. I want to say General Brownlee. I think so. And one other one. Yeah. They all basically lied 82 times. Mm -hmm. they, they said they didn't remember. I don't recall 82 times. Yeah. They said, where were you when you learned that Pat Tillman had been killed? 
And they all said, I don't remember. And I was telling Mary, I remember I was driving in my car with my husband. I heard it on the radio and I almost started to cry. It was like, I knew where I was. And you're not in the military. And Rumsfeld doesn't know where he was when he heard Pat Tillman was killed. The lies were so blatant. And it was so insulting to this family. You know, they just wanted the truth. And the story was made up, like almost on the spot. You know, it was like he got out of his vehicle. He came under attack. His platoon came under attack. He started firing. He killed nine people. And then we found out doing research that the same exact story about Pat's heroism there was told earlier by the same AP reporter who wrote it about another person who came under fire and shot nine enemy dead. I mean, it was almost the same language. And I, I actually got a hold of the reporter. I have a friend who was a, a reporter at AP. And I said, can you get me in touch with this guy? And he was somewhere in the Middle East. I think he was in Afghanistan. And I got him on the phone and I said, these stories you wrote under your byline are almost exactly identical. And one of them is totally not true. So how'd that happen? And he, he couldn't remember. And then he said, oh, I think I got the information from the military. It was all set up. So he was just acting as a stenographer? I guess. I mean, I don't know. You know, some reporters get, I don't want to disparage my colleague, my former colleagues, but um, some of them, they want to have a close relationship right. to the people they're covered so they could get, you know, breaks on stories and stuff. So maybe they, that he just swallowed what they told him and he didn't, what I, he didn't remember that he had written the same story a few months earlier. I don't know, but, but I, I wanted to say that what's really important here is the time frame, which is Pat was killed on the 22nd of April. On the 22nd of April, there was a story in the, in the news that the United States had the highest number of soldiers who were killed in that war up until for, for the month of April than any other month since the war began. And Abu Ghraib was about to break. They knew that, you know, Cy Hirsch's story was coming out. And so it was a very bad time for the military. So they had to turn this into an inspiring story. Mary, your son, Kevin, who was also served with Pat and was there, during this hearing, I believe it was, he said that he called Pat's death a terrible tragedy, which was transformed into an inspirational message that served instead to support the nation's foreign policy wars. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of young men and women enlisted after Pat was killed. In fact, I've been contacted by parents who actually lost their children and they enlisted because of Pat. And they didn't call to be hurtful. You know, they were proud of their children's service, but, you know, they did let me know this and it, you know, that would have been very upsetting to him to think that, you know, his death was used and somehow, you know, glorified or whatever in order to, you know, to get other people to enlist in the military. So I think it served their purpose. What kinds of changes in his attitude did Pat have in terms of his perspective on the war as time went on? Well, he originally going into Afghanistan in the very early 
you know, period, what they thought was going to be a covert, you know, covert operations to try to find Osama bin Laden. And, and then, of course, once the military even got close to finding him, and I think they were close, then the administration, the Bush administration, switched gears and started focusing on Iraq. And that was upsetting to my sons and to others in the military. They didn't think that that was a wise move. And he was rather vocal about it to us. I guess he was vocal to some of the people closest to him in the military as well. But he wasn't the only one. I mean, there were, you know, there were a lot of service people that questioned us going into Iraq. Didn't he say he thought he said it was illegal? Well, he didn't say that to me. He implied that because, I mean, once he and Kevin enlisted, we didn't see them that much. But to one of the fellow soldiers, he, he said that while they were there, while they were watching bombs drop in Baghdad, he said that. They were also there, their unit, when Jessica Lynch was rescued. Mm-hmm. And he knew it was... I mean, he and Kevin are both extremely smart people. And they they knew when they were told, you know, stay back until the cameras got there. Yeah. Can you explain? Because not everyone may know about Jessica Lynch's story. Yeah. I mean, well, in one of the hearings, Jessica Lynch's story came out along with Pat's. I mean, because they used both of them in the same way within a year of one another. And, you know, the Iraqis tried to give her back to the U.S. troops because she was so badly injured. They didn't think that they could provide her the care she needed, but we wouldn't accept her. And the reason for that is they wanted to video it. So they brought in Navy SEALs. They made it this big dramatic event, which she could have died in the the meantime or become crippled for life. And Pat and Kevin were waiting around for whatever they were supposed to do because they they were like peripheral characters for the Navy SEALs. They were the ones that actually went in. But the Rangers were on the periphery of the whole event. And in Pat's journal, not his military journal, because that journal was burned, actually, with a lot of his other things. But in his personal journal, he wrote in there that the Jessica Lynch rescue was reeked of a staged rescue. And she basically... They made up a story about her, too, when she was in a, a basically a car accident uh, in her military vehicle, and she broke so many bones, and she was on the ground. And they said that she was a heroic soldier who got up and was firing her weapon and killed all these people, the enemy. The same story they told about Pat, and she couldn't have done that. And she, this young woman who was made a a hero everywhere in America, she told the truth. She wrote a book and she told the truth about what happened. And she said she wasn't a hero. And she also testified to that at the congressional hearing. So, you know, these soldiers, the way they were using them, it makes you wonder how many others. Mary, why don't you tell about the mothers? who? Yeah, well, and I'd like to make the point too, though, that she, I mean, Jessica Lynch is very eloquent young woman. And in the hearing, she, she said that, you know, the military and the government, it doesn't have to make up stories of heroism because these individuals are, are heroic in what they do. And, um, you know, it's just really tragic, but I, I know at least five gold star mothers that were lied to about how their sons, it just so happens they were sons that the way their sons were killed 
And all of these boys grew up within 25 miles of one another. And they were all killed within like four months. You know, Pat was killed in April. One was killed about 26 days later. I mean, you know, they were all, and they all grew up in the Bay Area. And we were all lied to. Yeah. That they were not were they were all friendly fire victims? Is that right? Or well, one of them was a medic, and he was killed by the Iraqi. Um, well, they were. It was in Iraq that this young man was killed, and there was um, bounty money. The Bush administration didn't want anyone to know that there was bounty money on soldiers, and some of the Iraqi, you know, the Iraqis that were working supposedly with U.S. soldiers were killing U.S. soldiers. He called his mother and told her that he's, you know, that these things were happening. And within a week, he was, he was gone. I think there's still an ongoing trial on that. I don't know whatever came of that whole situation. And then, you know, there's just, you know, other things that this, these young men were, were killed and they, they were given a story that just wasn't exactly accurate. And their, their families found out, one family found out two years later because someone had a guilty conscience and knocked on her door and, and told her. I want to say that I could not, as a journalist, I could not have had a better partner in the investigation because Mary became like this dogged reporter who I remember, Dan, maybe you can explain it better, but we found some really mysterious stuff like, when his body, he, he was killed instantly. And when his body was taken to the medical center or the hospital or whatever at the base, um, for some reason, the doctor or whatever he was, a surgeon, or maybe you can explain it, but what he put on his report was um, patient, well, what did he say, patient? Um, transferred to ICU for continued CPR. Yeah, patient given CPR. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and some people try to explain that away because of some benefits that families might get if the soldier's killed on this on site versus in a hospital. I mean, I'm not buying that. I don't think it was done for that reason. I, I, I don't really understand it because Pat was killed. He died immediately. He was wrapped in a tarp. They didn't have a body bag for him. He was wrapped in a tarp. He was deemed KIA immediately. He was taken to this field hospital. And this was a field hospital, you know, that was a, you know, a pretty decent hospital. It wasn't like some mash unit, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, they took off his uniform. They, they put it in a plastic bag or something. And then days later, they had someone secretly burn his uniform, his his diary, his military diary, and various other things in a fire in secret when this, this hospital has a medical incinerator. So, you know, it's like, why was this done? I mean, all of these things, you know, just added to our concern and suspicion. There was also a protocol for a soldier who's killed in the field, his and he's going to be examined back in the States his clothes have to be returned to him. Every, he's supposed to go the way he died. And they didn't do that. They burned all this, all this evidence. And yeah, and that was, what, that was the, one of the reasons that, um, you know, they had to sort of tell us the truth about 30 days later because the medical examiner and the coroner were very suspicious that Pat came back with nothing on, nothing, and, you know, nothing was with him. And it was Rumsfeld who, who had an edict 
that came out December of 2003, that anyone killed by homicide, fratricide, or suicide, all of their stuff had to come back with them. So that, that was a red flag to the medical examiner as well as Pat's, Pat's wounds. They said an AK-47 could not cause those wounds. And so what actually happened? Because I know that they told one version of a story, then they told another version. Even when they said it was friendly fire, Mary, I remember in the book, you kind of said that you thought from that version of, of the events, it sounded like there was fog of war, people were fearing for their lives. But then that even that story isn't true. Well, you know, that's what I, I thought too initially, that these young people, and I mean, I don't know what happened out there. And, and you know, after almost 20 years and to, um, to try to put myself in the shoes of these young people, I, I really, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what happened. But, I, but it looked like some of them were, were more overzealous to be in a firefight than it did that they were scared. And I don't know exactly what happened. I don't think anybody does. It's hard to recreate it. Even the people that were there were still kind of confused about what actually happened. But Pat's platoon leader, Lieutenant Utlaut, and Jade Lane, who was the radio operator, who was really right near the platoon leader at the time, they were both wounded. The radio operator knew that the guys in the vehicle that shot them were friendlies. So when they were taken to the hospital, Jade had armed guards around him because they didn't want him to talk to anybody about the fact they were wounded by their own troops because they already were coming out with this story about Pat. They had already come out. There were a lot of like suspicious things that could not be explained. There were snipers in the area, American snipers. Nobody could explain, to my knowledge, why the snipers were there. Why did the snipers leave right away? You know, everyone had to be interviewed. So what happened to the snipers? That's one question. Another question is when they said that the story they used was that enemy were up on the hill shooting down at the platoon in two sections. And when they went up, I remember reading this in the Washington Post story, when the Americans went up on the hill the next day to look for what kind of ammunition it was so they could identify who was shooting up there. There were no spent bullets, none. There were no bullets up there at all. So that was curious, like, oh, wait a minute. If the enemy was supposed to be firing on us, why would they pick up their spent shells? That didn't make any sense. And then when Kevin flew back with his brother's body and another soldier went with him, who knew what happened to Pat? He knew he was shot by friendly fire, but he wasn't allowed to talk about it. And he got his head all messed up because he was a friend of Kevin's, a friend of Pat's, and they told him, don't tell Kevin what happened. So he flies back. They never tell him. I mean, Danny, I mean, Mary, Danny's her nickname. I call her Danny. Mary, <laughs> Mary, talk about the memorial. They knew he was dead. He was killed by friendly fire. General Kensinger was there. There were other people that were part of Pat's platoon, you know, leadership people. You know, and they were comforting us and everything, but it, you know, they knew all along what had really happened. And Russell Bear, who was the young man that flew home with Kevin and Pat's body, he was told not to tell him anything. And he felt really uncomfortable about that. He was very upset. He ended up not going back to Fort Lewis right away. They threatened him with court martial because he, you know, 
didn't go back right away. Just very peculiar behaviors from, from leadership and not what you would expect from the military. It's so disrespectful to families. It's hard enough to lose a loved one, but then to find out that the story changes every so many months, you can't process it. And, and it's, it's traumatizing. Tell about the drone. Well, yeah, there was, um, in theory, they're supposed to have air support. When there, there's a firefight, the air support is supposed to be sent in. And the forward observer, who is the one that keeps in close contact with, you know, the tactical operations center, he was, you know, trying to reach someone. And then he thought that the plane, you know, there was air support coming in because he heard something above. And then when he kind of stopped to listen, he thought, oh, no, that's, you know, that's not support. That, that sounds like a predator drone. And he said that, you know, pretty much all along. But everybody said, no, there is no predator drone. And there, there were other people that made references to seeing footage, you know, of Pat's death on a feed. There was a journalist named Andrew Exum. And he wrote a review of John Krakauer's book on Pat's death. And he said that he was in, you know, a talk, a tactical operations center, and he watched Pat get killed on a feed. But when I told him about it, he kind of hemmed and hawed, kind of like the journalist that Narda talked to that worked for AP. It was almost like, well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember. And then he just kept going on and on about, you know, telling me how sorry he was Pat died. And I could tell he just was not, he probably just put that in his review to be grandiose and was too embarrassed so there was one other thing two other things actually that stick with me one is at one point I had a source daddy knows who it is I'm Mary knows who it is and he knew what happened and he didn't want his name used in anything we were writing and we promised him that we didn't need his name but he was confirming things that which was very important and valuable so we knew we were telling the truth and writing the truth. And he said at the very end, I never forget this because we were sitting at my dining room table in Berkeley where I was living then. And we were finishing up the book, putting the final touches on it. And I had to ask him a question and called him. And he knew everything we were writing pretty much. And he confirmed everything. And then he got really frustrated. And he said, you two are leaving out something very important. And he was very exercised about it. And I said, what is it? And he said, okay, I'll tell you. He said, because of a unit that came under attack at some point in the war, they went out on a mission and they didn't have air support and several soldiers were killed. After that happened, there was an order that every single round operation where soldiers were going out on a mission had to be followed by air support. And he said that mission was supposed to have air support. And just before they took off, and we know this because the radio operator that Mary was talking about called the base, the talk, and said, okay, we're ready to go. And the air support guy said, we're right behind you. The person I was talking to on the phone said, somebody called off the air support and said, don't go. And so they didn't have air support. Now, you can say, okay, if they had had air support, would Pat have been killed? 
if there were enemy firing on the troops, they would have been mowed down by the air support, right? I don't know if there was air support and the friendly fire was happening, whether those guys would have been mowed down. We don't know that. But this person said, you need to find out why the air support was called off. We never could find out. What do you think? Well, you know, it's not hard for us to say what we think to each other, all right, or to our families or to to anybody, you know, who can, if you go through, all, and we're only telling you half the stories, but if you want to say, as some people do, that Pat may have been killed deliberately because he, here's what happened. I mean, Pat was, they wanted Pat when he enlisted. He gave up his career. He gave up a $3.8 or $9 million contract with the Arizona Cardinals. And he turned down, before that, he turned down a $9 million contract to go with St. Louis because the owner loved him. And he didn't want to, he was so loyal to Arizona where he went to college and everything that he didn't want to go for the money. That's the kind of person he was. I mean, his family knows him best, but he was an amazing person. And so I think he was, they, they wanted to make him a hero. They wanted to make him a patriot. They wanted people to enlist when he was killed, you know, to enlist in honor of Pat Tillman. They got that. We saw an email from George Bush's, uh, one of his press people saying, you wouldn't believe how much the enlistments have gone up since Pat Tillman was killed, you know, stuff like that. So whether or not there was some nefarious motive. And the other thing is, by the way, he did think the war in Iraq was illegal. He wasn't quiet about any of this stuff. You know, he was, he was a scholar. People wanted to make him into something. And in the end, they were left with making him into, you know, a dead hero. That's what they made him into. Is it true he was going to meet with Chomsky or in conversation with Chomsky? Well, he was interested in Chomsky and he read a lot of Chomsky's books. And he had a friend who went to MIT who said that he could introduce him. And and the friend actually talked to Chomsky about meeting Pat, but it wasn't like some serious thing, you know, like he was fascinated with the way Chomsky's brain worked, but I don't think it was any kind of, you know, clandestine, I'm going to, you know, that kind of thing. It wasn't like that. But he was fascinated with the way Chomsky looked at, at the world. By the way, the the person I told you about who told us that the air support was called off, he was threatened. I keep thinking, you know, the more that Mary and I talk about this or the more that, you know, people call her up because they can get her number and tell her things like the person who saw the drone and everything. The more that the story is told, I keep thinking somebody, people are going to call and say, okay, I can't live with this anymore. I'm going to tell you this. And I think that that more of this will come out that way. And the person who told me never to use his name, and I never have, he said he was threatened by the military if he said anything, anything about Pat Tillman, and that they said to him, you will go to prison and your wife and your children won't have any support if you talk about this. So he was afraid for his family to talk. Now, maybe, you know, 10 years from now, five years from now, his kids will be grown and he won't 
other, who knows? Who knows who's going to come out of the woodwork and talk about it? In the Pat Tillman story, the documentary that you participated in, Mary, mm-hmm. Brian O'Neill mm-hmm. is interviewed. And I want to ask you about him because he says stuff that seems very brave. Well, he, he's a very, yeah, he's very brave. He's still in the military. Yeah, that's what surprised me because he was saying stuff that was contradicted the official story. I was actually surprised he was allowed to stay in the military. Not that he shouldn't have been. I just think of the military as very intolerant of truth tellers. Yeah, well, he had a hard time. I mean, he put up with a lot, and but he's a really courageous person. Can you share with people who he was? Well, he was with Pat. He was a young soldier, 19 years old, and he was with Pat when he, right next to him when he was killed. And so he knew exactly what happened. And he also was told to keep his mouth shut. Didn't they take him out of the Rangers, though? They did. They removed him from the Rangers. They put him in another unit. Um, They tried, I think, to get him to leave, but he he wouldn't. And, you know, he was taunted. He, he, He had a really hard time, but he's a brave person. I mean, in the, in the hearing, the, the, the one that we had in unison with Jessica Lynch, they interviewed Gimbel and all these different, you know, people. And he was so eloquent, this young man, you know, he made these high-ranking people look ridiculous. He was very composed, very articulate, very honest. And, you know, he was really impressive. Yeah. And then you had on the other end of the spectrum, in terms of being articulate and composed, Colonel Kaslerich? Kaslerich, yeah. Kaslerich. Can you share with people what he said about the family? Well, he's a right-wing Christian, and, you know, we are not a religious family, and that was pretty, you know, well-known early on. But he basically said that we were looking for answers because we could not accept that Pat died because we don't have a belief system. And he, he said that we could not accept the fact that Pat was just warm dirt. Because you were atheist. Well, I wouldn't go that far. But I mean, but that's what he said. That's what his quotes were, right? We know this from... Yeah, yeah. He said that, you know, that we were atheists. Yeah, and then, that we couldn't accept, because we had no belief in anything after this life, that we could not accept that he was warm dirt. I think the highest ranking person involved in all this was Stanley McChrystal. Right, Danny? Well, yes. He was in in charge of the whole Ranger, the whole special ops at the time. I mean, Abizade would have been the highest ranking general. Oh, okay. Yeah. But they all knew. They all knew. They all knew. Yeah. I mean, people that are in the military now, you know, or have been in the military or retired or have had any leadership role at all, said it's not at all realistic to think they wouldn't have known immediately. They would have had to know immediately. But yet General Abizade said he didn't remember where he was and he didn't think he would, He learned about it for 10 or 12 days. In fact, he, he actually lied in one of the, you know, because they were all interviewed, you know, by the different investigations. There were like three investigations, I think. And in, in the documents, you know, they ask him, you know, where were you on this date? And he said, oh, I was in Qatar doing this or this. And as it turned out, he was actually in Afghanistan and he was visiting Pat's platoon leader who was in the hospital. And there's an article in Newsweek, like, I, I don't know if it was April 24th. I have the magazine somewhere. And he's talking about talking to Pat's platoon leader. Yet when he's asked years later in this investigation, he said he was, oh, he was in Qatar and, you know, like he didn't know it happened yet. I mean, 
you know, they didn't even remember what they said because everything's documented. I mean, you know, people of that ilk, they say something and people write an article about them and they don't always know it. So, you know, we found that just before the congressional hearing and at a crucial time when Abizaid was being questioned, the congressman that had the opportunity to ask him about it just froze. He didn't know what to say, in part because I think they weren't expecting Rumsfeld to be at that hearing. He said he wasn't going to be there. And then he showed up at the last minute. And that threw everybody off because he's sort of an intimidating character to them, I guess. Also, Pat apparently told an army friend that if he were to die, he said, I don't want them to parade me through the streets. Mm -hmm. So he, you think, anticipated that had, he anticipated that in the case of his death, he would be turned into a kind of recruitment tool for the army? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't even know that he thought, said that to whoever he said it to. But I, I think it crossed his mind. I mean, he was really kind of annoyed that they were har harassing him sort of to, um, to go to Washington and just be a recruiter. And he, he's, you know, that's not what I want to do. And that's, I, I'm not going to try to convince people to join. I joined because I felt compelled to do so, but I'm not going to convince other people to do that. And didn't they want to, they wanted him to have this big national military funeral? Yeah. And his wife, Marie, said he didn't want that. And she had to fight to, to not have that happen. Yeah, she stood her ground really well. I mean, I don't think they're supposed to write down their, I mean, they write down their wishes. And I don't think they're supposed to make copies of it or something. I don't know. But she did make a copy. And that wasn't something he wanted. And she pulled it out and presented it to them. So they said, oh, okay, you know, that was that. How has this impacted the rest of your family? It's been really hard. You know, everybody's going, goes about their, their life. But to have, uh, you know, the government cover up the death of your family member and show that kind of disrespect for the person in your family that died and you, it's very upsetting. And to be treated with, you know, dismissively or called crazy. I mean, <laughs> I've been called crazy many times. You know, it's it's difficult and it and it is crazy making. I mean, I you know, I, I I went through a few years where I was not very stable, I don't think. Understandable. Yeah. You're being like gaslit basically by US government. Yeah, and I think everyone in the family has had, you know, has felt that way and it's been it's been hard. But we're not the only families. I mean, we're we're you know, it's just that the tragedy is, I mean, here he was, this high-profile person, and he gave us an inroad in a way to get answers that other people couldn't have received. We, I mean, some people did try to help us a great deal, but some families, they're, they're handicapped. They don't have any way of getting that kind of help. Mm -hmm. right. What is Kevin up to? Did he stay in the military? Um, he just stayed as long as his enlistment required. And, you know, he's doing well. He, I don't talk about Kevin. He does. He's very private. I don't talk about the family at all because they don't like that. Want to be in the spotlight. Yeah. But he's doing well. You wrote that, a great piece that you cite in your book. Oh, he's written several others. Since oh, yeah. He's good. Yeah. He's a really good writer. He's a really good thinker. But he's really private. Yeah, that's another great thing about the book is I feel like I got to know, like, 
you know, you talk, you talk about, it's not just about Pat's death. It's also about his life. Yeah. So you get to know him as a, even like as a kid, his cute relationship with his brothers. It's a really great book. Thank you. Mary, how do you, do you have any advice for people who deal with loss in terms of how to like keep going on? Well, I work in a cemetery. My function there is different than it used to be. So I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not in a position to really help people directly or anything like that so much as I used to be, but, you know, just kind of face their grief head on. If they have, you know, if it's a death like this situation and when you need answers, it's helpful to try to find them for the death that most people have, you know, people die every day, you know, they just have to kind of follow their, what their body is telling them to do. You know, if they want to be in nature, they want to be around people. They don't want to be around people. Pay attention to what your body is telling you and try to do that, whatever makes you feel the best. But if it's a situation like ours and there's many and, you know, for different reasons, a murder situation or accident, it does help to try to get answers. It, it, it's some place to put your, your energy. It can be hurt, hurtful too. And there's a time when you have to stop but I think it does help. Yeah, it's a really great book. And I had read it before, but this time I listened to it on Audible, which is nice because you read it, Mary. But it's just a reminder that even, because you both have said no one really knows what happened. So at the very least, it was a friendly fire cover-up, right? At the very least. And even in that, when you're talking to people what happened, so many of the things that are protocol just make it clear how dispensable the lives of soldiers are to the military. Like the fact that they couldn't, you know, one issue in this accident was about a, what was it? A Humvee that broke, that broke down. And they of course couldn't ruin that. Like that went against protocol. All these things where you just see money and equipment taking precedence over. Well, there was a lot of breakdown in leadership um, from the very top. And so a lot of that cover up, in part, I think, could have been to just cover up their horrible behavior and stupid decision-making. I mean, there's there's lots of things that possibly happened. There's a young man who's convinced he's the one that killed Pat. I mean, he's been interviewed, Stephen Elliott. I mean, he's been interviewed by people, you know, in the last few years. He wrote a book, um, and I've met him, and he's a very nice young man. He's convinced that he's the one that shot Pat. Maybe he did. I, I just, it's hard, it's hard for me to, to know. And I don't know that he really knows exactly what happened, but I mean, it was on, wasn't on purpose in his, you know, he, he was just shooting. And, um, but I, I really don't know. And Narda, what about you? Are you, what are you working on? Any stories or, or mostly just editing sheer? Yeah, I'm editing a sheer post in. I'm also um, devoted much of the last six years to get an innocent man off death row in San Quentin. Oh, wow. So it's a different kind of tension and, yeah, hard work. Wow. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your guys coming on. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for having us on. I appreciate it.
again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time. 